1: Somebody said to me that we're going to be very near a great bookshop in Galway. Which What bookshop Charlie is Charlie
2: Burns. All right. Charlie Burns. It's got some ridiculous number of writers who've worked there and have gone on to, to to become world famous. But it's just very great. And I haven't been to Galway. I think it must be, it might be 20
1: years. Right. It's,
3: Can we get drunk and sing songs? That's what I'm looking forward to.
2: I very much hope so, yeah.
3: Okay.
1: The last time I was in... In fact, every time I've ever been to Ireland, I've got drunk in some songs, <laughs> okay, much to great. the displeasure of the of my hosts, probably. But anyway,
2: I did a you know that thing one track <laughs> mind. I did a one track mind about my um, uh, my experience of going. I guess it must have been Andy when Paul Bagley was manager of the Dublin shop. Oh yeah, so, I mean, really long time ago, probably getting on for twenty five, maybe mm. almost thirty years ago, early nineties, anyway. And it was um it was a, a, a dinner party at column to Bean's house column to bean at that stage I think um, had published name <laughs> <laughs> had only published one novel the, S- the south um by serpents tales so he wasn't the he wasn't the great man of quite the great man of letters that he was and I think also um an amazing woman called Katrina crow who was from the uh, I think from the National Library of Ireland and, and Joseph O'Connor as well it was one of those kind of and I ended up everybody got very drunk, but they started to sing at the end of the thing. And there is this traditional island called the Noble Call where you you ask somebody to sing a song. And I I can just remember the kind of anxiety of sitting there thinking, They're gonna ask me to sing a song and I, I just <laughs> I'm not sure I know anywhere. And somehow weirdly in that sort of drunken folk, a Northumbrian folk song emerged and I <laughs> I sang it. I mean, luckily the dialect in it is quite heavy, so I could, you know, (laughs) I could, I I could kind of. When I didn't remember the words, anyway, I kind of totally got away with it. But um, it's just it's any time anybody says get drunk and sing a song, I always think of that that just extraordinary nerve. It's not even nerve; it's just fear, deep fear. Out of somewhere, I managed to find a song. I think but then, you know, bit... after that, I learnt lots of songs, so I would never be. So I know the words to yeah, well, quite a few songs now. I, so think, I, Nikki, I think
1: that's a very Mitch, Mitchinsonian anecdote, given what we're about to record. <laughs> 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 Something's going to well up out of him now that he hasn't quite put his finger on what it's yeah, going to be. He said
3: purposely, I haven't read anything this summer apart from brain books.
1: Because he have been working so hard. Hold
3: on a sec, I might just have one or two or 20 others to Pluck out of nowhere. Nick,
1: do you prep for the weekend in terms of your repertoire?
3: Is it okay to bring a songbook? <laughs> is that not allowed?
2: <laughs> there's nothing worse than somebody sitting there with a with an iPhone with lyrics trying to. Uh, oh, no. I, 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 oh. I personally draw the line at that.
3: Okay, right. On that but on, on the
2: on the old, on the other hand, there's nothing worse than people forgetting the words to a song. So my, the, the whole thing of my one track mind talk, which I think is on the internet somewhere, was learn the words. Just
1: don't. Yeah, you know, yeah. Don't yeah. muck around.
3: Okay, I've got, I'll get a couple of songs lined up. Andy, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got.
1: <laughs> I'd be, I should be singing uh, Elvis Costello's first six albums from beginning yeah. to end. I
3: was about to say, you probably know <laughs> Abbey Road, don't you? Anything from I Abbey Road will be there. I do Abbey Road, yeah, I'm quite
1: up on that one. Right, uh, hello everybody. Uh, John, do you want to welcome people here? Yes, welcome to the
2: this uh, special summer reading edition of Backlisted. Um we've been off doing various exciting things over the summer and this is the first time we've we've been together in a in a month and we thought it would be a nice opportunity for us to share with you some of the things we've been reading.
1: We've done this a few times before. Where summer reading doesn't mean we never do summer reading in the summer <laughs> because that would be uh that would be too easy. We do it's, it's retrospective, our summer reading, so it's a, it's a report on what we read that you can either hold over for, to read next summer or you can read in the autumn and winter, uh, the two lovely seasons approaching.
3: It should really be called Summer Red rather than yeah. summer, <laughs>
1: reading. It
2: summer Reading. Summer reading. yeah, that's lovely.
1: <laughs> so we're going to talk about a few books that we've read over the summer and um, that we think are easily available in another... Um, departure from backlisted tradition you should you should just be able to buy these or get them from a library
3: and these are mostly new books aren't they
1: they're mostly new books
3: what quantifies a new book how, how new is new
1: i think all my choices are published this year nearly all of them yeah
3: so this isn't a regular episode of backlisted still this is still a kind of well it's, it's, it's very irregular of, yeah irregular it happens once a year and then we'll be back to back to business as usual in a fortnight
1: we're recording an episode in Galway. Uh, and if you are one of the listeners who likes to know what the books are ahead of time, that w- book will be the novel Elizabeth Costello by J.M. Kutseya. Kutseya? This is a traditional backlisted thing as well, where we haven't worked out how you actually <laughs> pronounce the name of this subject. Kutzea. Yeah, I'm we'll going to have to have it confirmed. We will find that out.
3: If you live in Galway, you may still be able to get tickets to come and see us. I believe so. It's a part of the Galway International Festival,
1: and that is taking place this Friday as we're recording this,
3: September the tenth.
1: Which book should we start with, everybody? Well, why don't you kick off, Andy? All right, let's start with the biggest and most daunting book that we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good plan, David Keenan who has written several books that I'm going to talk about in a minute, had a new novel out a few weeks ago called Monument Maker.
3: Friend of the show.
1: He's been on a couple of times. He was here to talk about Peter Garellix Elvis Presley books, and he was on earlier in the year to talk about uh, Clarice Lispector with Wendy Erskine, which was a really fun uh, episode. Anyway, David is is, a... Uh, I don't know, a force of nature? That's not right, is it? Force of intellect, force of reading, force of willpower? He's remarkable, isn't he? He's the real thing, yeah. It took me about three weeks to read this novel, and I'm going to do something that we don't normally do on Batlisted. but I I was commissioned to review it for a magazine, and I'm going to read the review uh, out as I wrote it, because actually... um, I found the novel really inspiring and uh, uh, it inspired me to write the following. And I think it's worth um, (laughs) respecting David's words and mine by just telling you what I think. So let me just share with you what I thought of Monument Maker by David Keenan, uh, which is published by White Rabbit Books um, and is in bookshops now. Near to the heart of this wild and labyrinthine novel, Page 516 of 808 pages, I turned the corner down so I could find my way back to it. A character in a letter addressed to his future self within the reminiscence of a disfigured and imprisoned World War II sailor who will subsequently be transformed via sorcery, surgery and sex into a medium and prophet, eventually finding his way back to Scotland where he will marry his own wife again, though possibly not in that order, states the following, quote, My studies in magic and experimental psychology, and of course alchemy, suggested that the goal of magical practice, which had become the goal of art practice, was a reuniting of fractured selves across time. This feeling of union, of union with the past, the present and the future, in a place that was outside of time, well, it was palpable to say the least. And true to our beliefs, our gamble with art changed everything. A Gamble with Art is a fitting description of Monument Maker, the novel itself as a place outside of time, where the author can combine a huge variety of characters with a multiplicity of ideas, memories and esoteric reading. And the book can be considered an artistic gamble too, with its author's reputation as the high stake. This is the fourth novel David Keenan has published in as many years. This is Memorial Device 2017, set in the post-punk scene of early 1980s Scotland, was a cult hit. For The Good Times, 2019, won the Gordon Byrne Prize. In 2020, Ex-Estabeth attracted attention from figures as diverse as Edna O'Brien, Selina Gordon and Kim Gordon. Monument Maker features references to characters and locations from these predecessors in what is becoming increasingly apparent is either a cycle of novels or one vast fictional gallimaufry several more instalments are in the works, and that Monumaker is the largest, longest and weirdest to date should detract neither from its ambition nor the risk it represents in its own right. David Keenan has said that the novel took him ten years to write, though construct may be a better term for a book inspired by the architecture of the cathedral. It's dedicated to the glory of God and encompasses four books identified as nave, Transept, apse, and Choir, plus several ecclesiastical appendices. Most of the sections are stories within stories. Memoir, biography, translation, supernatural tale, diary, letter and so on. This allows Keenan to keep moving, stylistically, geographically and temporally. A summer in the south of France in a house once occupied by the composer Frederick Delius. The Siege of Khartoum, Sudan, 1884, Crete during World War II, the surface of the moon in the not-too-distant future. And when they come, these shifts are disorientating, not to say baffling, but they are also crucial to the process of reading the book, one achievement of which is to unite the personal, the archetypal and the fantastic in a way that offers the reader the satisfaction of narrative or narratives without being reliant on what happens next. The book moves backwards and forwards in time like a connected series of dreams or visions. Quote, I thought of the trenches, and I flitted back there in my mind via the secret tributaries that tunnel beneath the page, and I imagined a literary underground, a book as a tomb for language and of a literary valley of the kings, a vast subterranean network connected across time and space, and all that would entail the empty bunkers, the daring passageways, the perpetual lack of sunlight. Monument Maker, then, is an experimental novel informed by religion, art, the occult, sex, tarot, alcohol, signs, symbols, and other experimental novels. It evokes the work of Malcolm Lowry, Clarice Lispector, Leonora Carrington, Arthur Macon, Philip K. Dick, and even John Fowles. Like them, Keenan is a literary disruptor and sees himself as such. He's also a writer for whom the lived experience and the imaginative one, drawn from books, films and music, are both vital and interchangeable. This isn't an easy or straightforward read, but it crackles with the energy of someone challenging themselves to make something new, meaningful and personal with the tools at their disposal. By turns, it's obscure, romantic, terrifying, funny and an underrated and unfashionable literary virtue, sincere. And if occasionally I was baffled by Monument Maker, well, I enjoyed being baffled, while also feeling I was this close to decoding it. I would love to read it again. From deep within the appendices, another clue to this book's true nature. Works of rogue imagination are impossible to police. The end of my essay on David Keenan's Monument Maker. What a damn fine review. I commend that. The bigger point for me is I didn't really understand all of the book, but I was utterly uh, enraptured by the energy, ambition, intellect, effort. It's one of those books that I thought, I don't need to understand it. understand why do you need to totally comprehend everything. It's wonderful. Johnny,
2: what did you think? I think David would be disappointed. (laughs) <laughs> if anybody felt that because I don't think he comprehends all of it either that's that's kind of why I think it's such a and I I don't say this lightly I think it is a I think it is a great book I think it's as near as we're going to get to one of those strange unclassifiable baggy masterpieces I don't think having read it that you will forget it and I also think it's a book that you could very happily go back to in the future, and reread, and find, and get more out of it. I think he's operating at uh, it's a high, it's a tightrope walk. It could easily fail. I loved what you said about sincerity. He means this book, and I love that about David. He, you know, I saw him read from it. At the at the um, an amazing event organised by White Rabbit Books, his publisher, at the Social in London, and it was ott mad, wonderful event. Wendy Erskine interviewed him. And he read several sections, including incredible yeah. kind of litany of names of choristers from, from the book. John Higgs, who'd previously been on uh, the podcast talking about Steve i on Backlisted, read an amazing passage from Blake's uh, Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It, I felt incredibly energized by the whole thing because it was, it was people not only talking about, but also reading from and manifesting that sense of imaginative energy. And, you know, you talk about the time travel in your review, Andy, that, that the amazing thing that David manages to do in this book is he gets away with passages set in the future on the moon. He gets away with jumping from cartoon to, I mean, I don't quite know how he does it, but there's a, there's a kind of an energy and an openness and a deep, deep curiosity and a, a reluctance to judge in his writing. Often with a difficult book or a challenging book, you would say to people, I'm not sure it's, you know, if, if you don't like that kind of thing, you're not going to like this. I think there's something in this novel for almost anyone. I think it. I think you could pick it up and start reading it and find, and find, you know, so, something in it that would that that would that would chime with, with experiences you had. He's he's opened the kind of passage, his imaginative passages, in a way that very few writers do now. It's 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 great.
3: Is it is it a novel?
1: If you were to ask me your your trademark question. What is it about? I don't know. That's what my review was trying to say. That's like 800 words of going, I don't know. <laughs> I tell you, Nikki. I think the thing that holds it together, uh, the immaculate design, and relates to what John was just saying, when I think David follows his passions and intellectual interests with a really appealing commendable uh lack of snobbery so his willingness to fold in elements of different cultural disciplines and within those different types of music or imagery or or fiction when I you know I made that litany of writers to whom I could have added many more but you know I, I love the sense that he's pulling in High, medium, low culture, pulp stuff, things you would have bought in compendium in the 1970s, high table literature, and, yeah, and skewing it all together through, through a, a, a vision. And in a sense, you ask, is it a novel? If David says it's a novel, it's a novel you know is art art if the artist says oh, yeah. it is to some extent right. then it is and then it's our job to to decode it and it's great. in bookshops now and it's 25 pounds <laughs> <laughs> so right one down who wants to go next <laughs> on our summer reading carousel
3: andy shall i talk about the book that uh, i enjoyed very much in fact that you told me about at the beginning of the summer
1: Ah, uh, yeah um, why not great
3: open water By Caleb Azuma Nelson. And I think you said right at the beginning, might be not even on a program, you said, Oh, I would maybe go away and read this and see what you think. And you were very cagey about what you said as well. You didn't sort of say, it's brilliant it's wonderful it's odd it's strange you just said I'm interested to see what you think
1: and and uh, yes because indeed I still I'm still I'm really I I don't you do, you haven't told me what you're going to say and I'm still stewing this book which is very short unlike monument maker oh. it's it's a really short little um novel novella it's called yes you said open water by Caleb Azuma Nelson we've got a clip of the prologue. This is the very beginning of the book and this is Caleb
0: reading his own work himself. The barber shop was strangely quiet, only the dull buzz of clippers shearing soft scalps. That was before the barber caught you watching her reflection in the mirror as he cut her hair and saw something in her eyes too. He paused and turned towards you, His dreads like thick, beautiful roots dancing with excitement as he spoke. You two are in something. I don't know what it is, but you guys are in something. Some people call it a relationship. Some call it friendship. Some call it love. But you two, you two are in something. You gazed at each other then with the same open-eyed wonder that keeps starting you at various intervals since you met. The two of you, like headphone wires tangling, caught up in this something. A happy accident. A messy miracle. You lost her gaze for a moment, and your breath quickened, as when a dropped call across a distance gains unexpected gravity. You would soon learn that love made you worry, but it also made you beautiful. Love made you black, as in, you were most coloured in her presence. It was not a cause for concern. One must rejoice. You could be yourselves.
3: Right. So, on the surface, this is a, a romance. It's a book, a, a very, and you set it up, didn't you, Andy? You said, oh, is it a bit like a Sally Rooney novel, you could say, on the surface? Um, and, you know, perhaps they should have put that on the front because that would have made it sell tons of copies. But it turns out to be a lot more than that. It's a, a romance at the beginning, which is not a kind of will they, won't they. They have, It's this couple who have a friendship and it takes quite a long time to turn into a romance. And actually, that's those that are very beautiful moments within the book mm. because it's very tender and it's very much about friendship and should you change friendship into romance and and lots of really, I think, really restrained kind of writing around that. Um, and, and, and it's it's really very beautiful and thoughtful and, as I said, very tender. But then it kind of evolves into something much more than a romance. And I don't know how much more to say, but essentially it's about kind of um, being young black man in mm. London and, and the sort of pressures that that systemic racism adds to your daily life. And actually the whole book is about being young and black in London in some of it being the sort of precious, but also some about the beauty and the wonder and the amazing art and culture. And and, and it sort of references tons and tons of other artists. You know, Zadie Smith is kind Absolutely. of quoted throughout and and, you know, Curtis Mayfield, Kendrick Lamar and things like that. So you're always sort of hearing of lots of these great kind of cultural icons throughout. But it's it becomes kind of more and more intense, actually, mm. around. The sort of oppressive nature of living this life in London as a young as a young person, and one of the things that I really liked about it was this. From you know, I'm in my forties and I live in London, and I'm a white woman, and I it was this window into a world of like, of course you live with your family. You're in your twenties and you're a Londoner. Like, how else would you mm-hmm. live in London without living with multiple, you know, generations and having to manage a relationship? a new relationship around the fact that everyone lives with their family. Of course they do, because how else would they survive? So I thought for some of that stuff, really interesting. And and then in terms of the writing itself, it's kind of super rhythmical. And I think you heard there, it's all in the second person. And, you know, you you have the phone tucked between your ear and your shoulder. Mm. or but and, and loads and loads of repetition throughout, isn't there? It's sort of repeating yeah. things all the time. I, I don't know. Sometimes I found that beautiful, but sometimes I found that slightly... Odd.
1: Bit scratchy at times.
3: Bit scratchy. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Scratchy. I learned stuff. Yeah. yeah. The fact that it was more than the romance, because the romance is a good hook. It really made me think, oh, gosh, okay, this is affecting you in such a way that you aren't able to make these good decisions about your life.
1: Well, you you think you're reading normal people when you start Mm. it, Mm. or a version of normal people. But actually as the drift of the book goes on without saying too much it becomes it it becomes a much more about an investigation of single identity and why the option of writing normal people from a different cultural perspective is not open to the individual writing the book it's it's not a critique of normal people that's not what i mean but it is very interesting about showing up the cultural Circumstances that produce one kind of book as opposed to another kind of book, and that's the thing I think I took away from it i i I agree with you about some of the methods in the prose, and I felt this was a, a in the best way, very promising rather than the finished article did you feel that it made me think well this is great i wonder what i wonder what this guy's going to do next
3: i felt that too actually i felt that too at times i was a bit sort of as you said scratchy is a good way of, of of describing it it wasn't perfect but it's still absolutely 100 percent kind of worth it you know yeah I I, I I absolutely enjoyed it and I, I i felt there was something interesting because also he's a, the main character as a photographer right who writes a bit and the author is a photographer who's clearly written a fair bit, you know, in order to get this done. So there's lots of, you, you, you're you not quite sure how much of this is personal and how much of it is, you know, is, is created, is, is fiction. And, you know, that makes me think, okay, well, what next for, for someone who's he's managed to get a book out, right? What's he going to do next? It might be a different art that he works in now, a different discipline. He's somebody worth, worth watching.
1: Also, I, co- I commend him for writing a short book. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> just a personal that's just a that's just a personal me too uh, reflection <laughs> on my time uh, John have you got something for us well it's it's interesting I, I
2: can I just say you've both made me really really want to I did not do my homework andy because I completely forgot <laughs> about it but uh you, made, you both really made me want to to read that book
3: well you you'll do it in an afternoon John you should definitely read it yeah. you should
2: definitely read it it's a very good book. I, I want to talk about a book that's given me just the most intense amount of pleasure that I think I've had from a book for a long time. And bear in mind, I have been reading lots of books about the brain over the summer. Um, but it's, it's Erasure, a 2001 novel by the American writer Percival Everett and republished mm. this year by Faber. So it's 20 years old, but it is, you know, Let's be honest. I, we like we like a book about books on this show, and the the narrator of this of this book is a um, is a writer, an academic, and a novelist called Thelonious Ellison, or everybody knows him as Monk. Mm-hmm. He's clearly there is a kind of a there's, there's quite a lot of Percival Everett in this character. It's it's playful in, in tone, but it's also I think. And uh, un, un, the undertow is actually quite a quite, it's quite a serious and complex and possibly the most interesting attempt to deal with the problem of how do you be a black writer when everybody's telling you what you should be doing as a black writer so he's mm. subtly undercutting that so Thelonius is, is a writer but what he specializes in incredibly difficult postmodern novels that nobody reads. <laughs> and uh, there's a brilliant parody. He does a, he delivers a little piece uh, to his students uh, at uh, uh, the Nouveau Roman Society about his take on Sed, the famously kind of complicated Roland Barthes book, which is based on a structuralist rereading of the story Sarrazine by Balzac. I mean, apart from the fact that it's a brilliant bit of parody, you can feel that what's building up around this is one, his, his mother's get, get, getting dementia. Two, his brother has announced that he's gay and is, he's in dialogue with his, his, his father who's dead. And, uh, but his agent rings in the middle of all this and says, look, you know, you're just not black enough. You know, this stuff, your stuff is not, you need to do. And he's, he becomes obsessed by this a young female black writer who's got a massive advance and a massive film deal for, for a book. He's just furious about this. So, what he does is he writes. He writes a book called "My Pathology" by Stag G R Lee, and he and it's basically Stag R Lee. So it's yeah. like it's written in kind of in in black slang. It's full of it, it's f- full of hoes and bros and people being stabbed and sex and kind of and it's. And he, it, it, that's a good, yeah, it's a, that's a good 50, 60 pages of the novel. Of course, he sends it to his agent and he gets offered like $600,000. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, I'm not going to tell you the whole plot, but then, of course, it gets, he ends up being asked. Uh, the, the character, Monk Ellison, ends up being invited to be a judge on a on a big National Book Award. So he becomes a judge on a on a book award. So in in the kind of meta way that of course a book like this works, my pathology, he decides, he decides he doesn't like the title. So he gets the publishers to change the title to fuck (laughs) by Stag (laughs) R. Lee. And in the end, they just have to buy it. They've uh, he, he get there's a brilliant scene where he he has he he starts to interp- impersonate Stag R Lee. I'm going to read you a little bit about the books that he gets submitted of having just done a book prize. This is one of the best. Yeah, all right. Spoke to you, right? I mean, the the writing throughout. It's so funny. It's so clever. It's it, but in the end, it's act, What it's actually about is is serious and real. It's about family relationships. There's a lovely introduction from from Brandon Taylor. um, And he says, I just think this really sums up the book perfectly. Everett is illuminating something all right, but what erasure sends up is the silliness of going about your business as a black person, only for the world to rush in and to try to remind you that you are black and that it means something, but that you aren't allowed to dictate what that something is. The world demands that you introduce yourself twice, first as you are, and the second as you're told to be. So, it is a serious thing. I mean, it, it seems to me that it, it, it connects to some some of the things you were saying about Caleb Azuma Nelson's book. You know what you can't do as a black writer in some ways that you can do if you're. A, I mean, this is mm. he saw mm. Bellow good in terms of his pro, his comic mm. prose. He's, mm. It's it's and the book is also I think very very kind of in dialogue as you would imagine with with um, with Ralph Ellison. I mean, the characters yeah. Ellison so Invisible with Invisible, the Invisible yeah. Man in particular. But I just thought this. This will amuse uh, listeners because it's it's so spot on. This is, he, he's getting all these books. As the, you know, the, the books are coming in their in the, in the caseload through yeah, the door. Yeah. It was the season of the absent or lazy editor. So many of the novels were needlessly fat. Six were more than 900 pages, 12 were better than 700, <laughs> and any one of them would and could have been, with a modicum of editorial attention, a good 400-page novel. There was an incredibly dense novel from a well-known reclusive writer of dense novels. There was a nicely crafted and notably lean novel from a writer whose reputation was astonishingly well made. There was a volume of collected stories from a dead writer, a shelf of first novels about fatherly abuse and motherly alcoholism, and the reverse, a min-list author's new but dreadfully old take on the academic novel, 28 middle-America domestic where-will-the-children-live novels, 40 coming-of-age novels, (laughs) 35 new life after the wrecked marriage novels, 30 crime novels, 40 so-called adventure novels, and six yeah-we're-Christians-with-chips-on-our-shoulders novels. For the most part, the titles received more consideration than the stories of the writing. Still, I found 30 I wish I'd written, 10 because I could not have written them better. The other 10 were simply good, well-crafted, serious, thoughtful. At the first conference, one of the judges, I'm not to say which one, said, I'd like to see Rita Totten's Over My Body on the shortlist. When asked why, she said, for two reasons, because Rita's a good friend of mine and because she got such a scathing review in the New York Times. I pointed out that one could argue that either of those reasons might be enough to keep her off the list. Thomas Tomad sighed. This is Tomad speaking. As it was a telephone conference, it was kind of him to identify himself. And I believe that Tartan's novel is just so much fluff. Filthy fluff, but fluff nonetheless. Another judge. I'd like to see Richard Wordman's book on the lists. Don't you work with him, someone asked. Why, yes, although I don't think it's his best (laughs) book. I'd like for him to know that I take his work seriously. Uh, Why don't we wait until all the books come in, I asked. "Mm, Sounds reasonable, Wilson Harnett said. This is my suggested course of action. We each compile a list of 25 books. Then we see if there's any overlap. We'll discuss the list, and any book with at least two mentioners goes to the next round. From there, we'll wing it. Tomad says, sounds good. I've already got a couple I'm willing to go to the mat for. There's some gritty stuff out there. (laughs) Sigmussen. Yeah, sure. The nature writing is skinny by my standards, but there are still a couple of good ones. Toby Lackfugan's book is remarkable. Hoover. I didn't get all of that. Yes, of course. I was surprised to see so many books by such big names. Shouldn't we just go ahead and put them <laughs> on the list first? Ellison. Okay.
1: Ah, <laughs> just- oh, brilliant! It's- and it, really it, it, good. It, really good.
2: I don't. You know, again, please say, but it will keep you laughing until the very last page. But it's, I, I just think he's—he's he's one of those writers I've discovered. and I think I don't. I haven't read comic. I mean, Andrew Sean Greer. You know, our lovely Francis Plugg. I mean, there are very few comic books that really, really, that really do it. And here's one.
3: What's it called again, It's John? called
2: Erasure.
1: Erasure by Percival Everett. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. I'm going to just say a bit about, uh, and I reckon quite a few listeners will have read one or, or all of these books already. Um, Deborah Levy, the novelist Deborah Levy, has over the last several years published three volumes of what uh she and or her publisher hamish hamilton refer to as a living autobiography first volume was published about seven years ago it's called things i don't want to know the second volume 2018 i think the cost of living and then the third and final part real estate came out in may this year and um these are memoirs, short in each case, of Deborah Levy's life as a writer, as a, a feminist, as a, a parent, as a recently divorced s- former spouse, and in that sense, what the books are really about, I think, are identity in midlife and beyond. Looking forward, what are we if we are or aren't and can or cannot refer to us as those things? And um, here's a bit from the audiobook of The Cost of Living, which is illustrates the theme and the tone of these books perfectly, read by Juliet Stevenson quite brilliantly.
3: And this is the second book, is it, in the three?
1: Yeah, this is the second one, The Cost of Living.
4: That November, I moved with my daughters to a flat on the sixth floor of a large, shabby apartment block on the top of a hill in North London. Apparently, a restoration programme was due to start in this apartment block, but it never seemed to start. The floors of the communal corridors were covered in grey industrial plastic for three years after we moved in. The impossibility of repairing and rehabilitating a vast old building seemed gloomily appropriate at this time of disintegration and rupture. The process of restoration, the bringing back and repairing of something that existed before, in this case an Art Deco building that was falling apart, was the wrong metaphor for this time in my life. I did not wish to restore the past. What I needed was an entirely new composition. It was a bitter winter. The communal heating system had broken down. The heating was off, the hot water was off, and sometimes the cold water was off too. I had three halogen heaters on the go and twelve large bottles of mineral water stored under the sink. When the water was switched off, The toilet would not flush. Someone had anonymously written a note and stuck it on the lift door. Help! Please help! The flats are unbearably cold. Could someone do something? My oldest daughter, who had begun her first year at university, joked that student life was a luxury in comparison. For a few weeks after she departed to begin her degree... I woke up in the small hours with a queasy feeling that something was wrong. Where was my oldest child? And then I remembered, and I knew that we were all of us moving forwards into another kind of life.
3: That resonate with you, Andy.
1: It does resonate with me. But then all, I mean, I I don't think these books were written for me, Mm. but I found them incredibly uh, useful and funny and rather moving and the energy for me as I think you could hear there in that brief excerpt is the just the sheer pleasure of the um careful pinpoint accurate prose Like that's that is writing what's writing that's writing you know Choosing, selecting the details to present to you and pairing them down and pairing them back. None of these books are very long. You could probably read most of them in an... You could read one in an afternoon. Um, I would say, for me, the first and third volumes are both very good. Um, but the middle one, The Cost of Living, which I know has been much praised... Um, appeared in lists of books of the century. I must say, I think the middle one, the cost of living from which that excerpt comes, is exceptional. And I think you could just read that one straight off the bat. Although they do talk to one another, there are themes and images that pick up from book to book. I ended up thinking they were incredibly um, brave. They are incredible feats of nerve. Because actually, what are they about? They're not really... I mean, they're, they're musings on subjects. They're, they're, they're autobiography, but they're not autobiography because they're so partial. Also, I was very interested with some of the books that I've been reading. I've been reading a lot of books by women over the last couple of months. And Deborah Levy really engages with what um, it means to be a, a, a writer and a woman and a woman writer. In this historical moment, in this point in her life, how useful to her is is ideological feminism at this point? Um, does she wish to hang on to that identity? Does she want to discard pieces of it? Is it possible? Can those do those two thoughts go together or not? I found him really thoughtful. And this, this, this dovetails in with, a, uh, with the, the, the books by Vivian Gornick that I'm going to talk about at the end of the show. But anyway, so, yeah, I've strongly stro- – I love them. I love. What can I tell you? I love them. Uh, um, uh, so they're all published by Penguin or Hamish Hamilton. The first two are in paperback and real estate is out in hardback. I think you would, I think you would both, I mean, we keep saying this to one another about all these books, don't we? But I mean, I think you would, I I find it hard to think that, that not, you know, both of you, but also anyone who really listens to this podcast regularly would just enjoy, you know, uh, uh, re- undoing the laces of their tight shoes and, <laughs> and just reading these with pleasure, you know, um, john have you have you got something else for us uh, <laughs> I've, i have actually i've just
2: um over the summer uh, um i had friends staying and uh who they were doing something at the wind they were doing a i always think it a must be quite thankless to be running a bookshop at wilderness festival <laughs> apparently
3: it was lots of fun
2: uh, but sure i mean i'm but I just think it was the the weather was appalling.
3: Oh, was it? Oh, god, a mudfest.
2: Joyously, what what happened was that they were one of the writers who was speaking was Jeff Dyer, who'd flown over from LA. So Jeff came and stayed for for an evening, and we had a very very um, jolly time talking about all kinds of things. Inevitably, talk went got on to D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> Inevitably, and the reason I'm telling you this is because he said you must read my c- selected essays. I said, well, you know, funnily enough, I've just I've just done a thing about Frances Wilson's book, and she kind of mm. more or less agrees with you that the the point of Lawrence is the small pieces, the travel pieces, the, the reviews, the, the 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 letters. You know, it's all one. It's all one book. So anyway, he he sent me he sent Rachel and I a copy of the book. Uh, life lived with an L. And it's the most Jeff Dyer thing in the world because he's um he's there are a couple of mistakes in the introduction. He's he's hand corrected them.
1: For- oh has he? <laughs> oh that's
2: good. I just thought what I might do, because I know it always cheers Andy up when I decide to I thought I might just read you a tiny little bit of of one of on of one of the best essays in the book. Um uh which I had heard quoted from, but I never actually read. And it's called The Bad Side of Books. Okay. The Bad Side of Books. There doesn't seem much excuse for me, sitting under a little cedar tree at the foot of the Rockies, looking at the pale desert disappearing westward with hummocks of shadow rising in the stillness of incipient autumn. This morning, the near pines perfectly still, the sunflowers and the purple michaelmas daisies moving for the first time. This morning, in an invisible breath of breeze, to be writing an introduction to a bibliography. Books, to me, are incorporate things, voices in the air that do not disturb the haze of awesome, and visions that don't blot the sunflowers. What do I care for first or last editions? I've never read one of my own published works. To me, no book has a date, no book has a binding. What do I care if E is somewhere upside down or G comes from the wrong font? I really don't. (laughs) And when I forced myself to remember what pleasure there is in that, the very first copy of The White Peacock that was ever sent out, I put into my mother's hands when she was dying. She looked at the outside and then at the title page and then at me with darkening eyes. And though she loved me so much, I think she doubted whether it could be much of a book since no one more important than I had written it. Somewhere Hmm. in the helpless privacies of her being, she had wistful respect for me. But for me, in the face of the world, not much. This David would never get a stone across at Goliath. And, Why try? Let Goliath alone. Anyway, she was beyond reading my first immortal work. It was put aside, and I never wanted to see it again. She never saw it again. After the funeral, my father struggled through half a page, and it might as well have been Hottentot. Well, what done they give it for that lad? Fifty pounds, father. 50 pounds he was dumbfounded and looked at me with shrewd eyes as if i were a swindler 50 pounds and i've never (laughs) done a hard day's work in their life (laughs) i think to this day he looks upon me as a sort of cleverish swindler who gets money for nothing a sort of earnest hoolie and my sister says to my utter amazement you always were lucky Somehow, it is the actual corpus and substance, the actual paper and rag volume of any of my works that calls up these personal feelings and memories. It is the miserable tome itself, which somehow delivers to me the vulgar mercies of the world. The voice inside me is mine forever, but the beastly, marketable chunk of published volume is a bone which every dog presumes to pick with me.
1: Oh, obviously, rubbish, John. absolute, <laughs> absolute rubbish. Yeah. No, that obviously that's great, isn't it? So, uh, well, I've got two things to say. My first thing is, uh, you know, who isn't looking forward to yet another adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover coming on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing news, uh, but also. Um, I'm going to be talking about, on the next uh, episode of Backlisted, I'm going to be talking about Rachel Cusk's new novel, which is inspired by uh, an engagement with uh, a memoir of D.H. Lawrence. And Cusk's novel is a kind of exploration of what the Lawrence-like creative figure means in the culture a hundred years later, Um and that's very interesting in terms of the book we're going to be talking about, Elizabeth Costello, Absolutely. by Kurtzay. So that's why I'm holding that back for for the next episode of Batlisted. Great. Um, so we will return yet again to D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Just
3: can't can't get rid of him.
1: Should we Should we finish up? I've got one yeah, more thing yeah, to talk about. Great,
3: Andy, you've been on a new reading binge. It's amazing. All these new books.
1: Well, it's because we had the break, and suddenly I didn't have to cram. Yeah, a yeah. backlisted book. I had all this free time to read much, many more new things or or writers who are new to me.
3: And how have you found, just a quick kind of interlude, how have you found this whole modern reading malarkey?
1: Well, the thing is, I shouldn't say this. It made me realise how our reading for backlisted is. We're very lucky because, to some extent, the quality control is artificially um, heightened because we ask people... Who are who are experts to select books that therefore tend to be excellent books, yeah. and we or written by people whose work is also excellent and interesting. So a lot of our time we spend reading um, books that are a cut above. Yeah, and what I found by being given of a a f- my own um, will. Back for a few weeks, is it was possible to read quite a lot that were a cut below, (laughs) Um, because because and I read a couple of things that I absolutely hated, (laughs) and and that actually hasn't happened to me for a while. Yeah, Um, but a couple of uh, I'm not gonna, I don't even bother. Don't message me. Don't email me. Don't tweet me. I'm not going to say what they are. But I read a couple of things that I just I was laughing because I hated them so much. I actually enjoyed reading them, Nikki, because I thought
3: the one star you love. Oh, this is what this
1: reminds me. This reminds me of what real reading is. You know, (laughs) the the actually sort of not. It wasn't boring. I didn't get nothing from it because what I got from it was the sheer exhilaration of reading something I hated. I really hated. So anyway, but that's not what I'm going to talk about now. Finally for this episode, uh, I want to talk about Vivian Gornick, who is a New York Jewish woman writer in her mid-80s. There are probably a dozen of her books that uh, I could have talked about or we could choose to talk about on Batlisted, her memoir, Fierce Attachments, her book, The Romance of American Communism, which I've started reading, which is absolutely terrific. But I read a couple of things by her, which are her books of essays, literary essays. And I think they are exceptionally great. Um, The first one is called The End of the Novel of Love, and it was published in the mid-1990s when she was slightly older than Deborah Levy is now. And uh, I mentioned, there's a reason I mentioned that. And the other is called Unfinished Business, yeah. Notes of a Chronic Rereader. And this was published last year. Now she is in her early 80s. And the two books really do speak to one another uh, by the same writer from different points in her life about how she felt about books when she was in her um, early 60s and how she feels about them now she's in her mid-80s. And she folds that into what she's writing. I'm not imposing that. That's not my interpretation. That's partly what the books are about. And um, the end of the novel of love, which was written in the, collects her, her journalism, Um, Features essays on, amongst others, Grace Paley, Willa Kafer, Jean Rhys, George Meredith, Jane Smiley and Richard Ford, John. And she's coming at those from the position of, she's a, a famous feminist writer. And she's coming at them from the position of saying, novels about love rather like The End of History, presumably with the book to which this 90s book refers. Novels about love are over. Lo- what love means, fulfilment, in our society now is no longer the same thing. What's much more interesting are novels about self-realisation. And she revisits books that she may have read as a younger person, written by those authors, not from the position of, romantic fulfilment that the characters may or may not have experienced, but from the position of individual fulfilment. And the essays are so brilliant and so perceptive and make you look at books, even Middlemarch, that you may think you know all about from a completely different perspective simply by changing the focus. Is it a book about um, Dorothea and Will getting together or is it a book about Dorothea becoming herself? Discuss. And she takes the latter discussion. Now, that was written, and that was written in the mid-1990s. And her argument is in the mid-1990s, novels about love are over. Fast forward to 2020. Fast forward to her in her 80s. This is a book about what rereading means at different times in life. And she at no point renounces what she said earlier. But she is prepared to go back and her brilliance as a writer and a critic, and go back and judge herself and say, was I right? Well, it doesn't matter if I was right or if I was wrong. What does this way of looking at a book or the world or my life allow me to do, and what does it stop me doing? And that seems to me incredibly uh, interesting and relevant and and engaging as a way of thinking about books, but a way of thinking about how we think about books. So this is this paragraph from an essay about Pat Barker's regeneration and, yes, backlisted listeners, J.L. Carr's A Month in the Country is spectacular because she talks about what she thought A Month in the Country was about the first time she read it when it was published and what she thinks about it now she's reread it and she says, I cannot believe that I interpret it one way and not the other, while I can simultaneously see that both interpretations are valid. And then she produces this paragraph, and this is my favourite thing of all the books I read in the summer, in this summer reading episode, this single paragraph, this is what it comes down to. From this essay about a month in the country, which is the subject of the very first episode of Batlisted, Vivian Gornick writes, in service to class struggle or women's rights for that matter, I have experienced many times those deliciously hard-edged feelings Billy had whenever he was ripping off authority and I know while in their grip one imagines oneself bold, free, liberated. But unnuanced freedom is no freedom at all it's the nuance of that makes us act like civilised human beings, even when we do not feel like civilised human beings. Do away with nuance, and it's all animal life. In other words, war. Now, I think that, as a dropped-in paragraph of a few sentences in an essay, which is superficially lit crit, is... Just it knocked me off my feet um, because of what the historical period we're living through at the moment and things that happen in the culture at the moment. And her willingness to say, to try and create a way of seeing the world that can incorporate ideology without being enslaved to ideology. Yeah. That seems both the kind of artistic drive the true artistic drive but also a place that as a culture we would do well to try and bear in mind when we're tearing chunks out of one another about relatively unimportant matters <laughs> so that's where i am on that those books are amazing the vivian gornick the end of the novel of love and then that bit that i just read is from unfinished business and notes of a chronic rereader and, when and again was anyone unfinished who's, business written uh, last year published last, last year yeah, okay and like I say, she she revisits books, um, and if this doesn't persuade listeners, and especially uh, John Mitchinson to read this book, I don't know what will. She revisits books by J. L. Carr, Pat Barker, Natalia Ginsburg, Elizabeth Bowen, Brilliant. Colette, and, it, and it's not- and D. H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. Great, mm-hmm. and John, the essay about Sons and Lovers is totally wonderful in terms of saying I thought this book was about this this book is about this but I couldn't have known that when I was younger and being younger that wasn't the wrong reading but every reading reveals something new depending on who you are and what the book means. And
3: Does she talk about her own life in relation to these books then is that is that kind of very much about her yeah, as she manages,
1: woman. well, other, yes, she assumes, she does an interesting writerly thing of assuming you, the reader, do know something about her, and her life and her career. And I find that, I think that's very good, a bit like Deborah Levy, actually. But she's almost writing from, you know, Deborah Levy's books are about looking down the track, what will be useful to her in as she heads into being an older person and down the track 25 years ahead is vivian gornick saying well rightly or wrongly this is what i feel i have discovered in the post-ideological uh way i now look at the world or try to look at the world so i i it was yeah, it was a good summer nikki
3: right i'm That's so brilliant no, the
1: way that all these books talk to one another yeah. inside your head and we get to talk about them on here it's very um very I'm so
3: pleased you finished it with a woman in her 80s because I think, you know, and we've, we've talked about people writing in their in their um, senior years on Lot Listed, haven't we, before, but there is this sort of perception that once you reach a certain age, you know, you, you don't have that intellect anymore, which is such a kind of ridiculous, you know, people really talk down to older people, don't they? There's mm-hmm. a real sense of, are you there? Are you okay? You know, yeah. but actually yeah. somebody, you know, really just reflecting on how only through having their lived experience are they able to reassess and see great works that they've previously seen as one thing and they can now see as another really that life is important and has led to that reunderstanding and also the
1: expression you can hear the 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 qed of that is the manner in which that that is expressed in the paragraph i just read that isn't a a, a wishy-washy um rather pretty literary seeming poetic piece of writing like this terrible book that I read, which I won't say what it is. Um, That is the real thing. Each sentence says something different and builds on the previous sentence and doesn't muck about with, um, with, with wafting rose petals around the room. It, it, it's, just tr- the writing is so full of um, wit and life. So there you go, Vivian Gornick. I will be reading more. Yeah, just to say her the interview, her Paris
2: Review interview is one of the very best I've read. She's just just so funny and so and yeah. like, she's amazing. I think. Um, well, I, I don't often say this, as it were, on air, but I've ordered that, Andy, now. <laughs> totally, Have you? literally sold it to me as we were speaking. On the spot. On the spot.
1: On the spot. So, uh, John, where can people purchase these books if they want to? If they're not going to borrow them from a library, what what service exists where so oh, they could the, get hold well, of them? I mean, If you
2: go on to um, bookshop.org and, um, and put in, I think, forward slash backlisted, you should come up with um, – you should come up with the backlisted shop. Let me just give you the. I'm go, I'm going to do this properly because it's uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash backlisted, and you'll see that all of our 144 episodes um, are on there, and we will definitely be putting um, putting these books. That this, this this episode, which I guess is going to be our 145th, will be on there as well.
3: Yeah, and if you can't remember the URL, there, you can just search backlisted, can't you, in bookshop.org, and yep. it comes yeah.
1: up. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. That oh, was it's great. great. It's great. Another, <laughs> that's our 145th episode. So we're back in a couple of weeks. We'll be talking about Elizabeth Costello by J.M. Kurt Please back us on the Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash backlisted, because that helps us keep going, as does anything you buy from the bookshop. And we're about to go straight on and record uh, another uh, episode, uh, but that one is for Locklisted and that is for Patreons. And that has got more book chat like this. So if you enjoyed (laughs) that, uh, join us on the Patreon. Thanks very much. See you next time. See you, everybody. Thank you.
2: If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.